Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schult from the University of British Columbia. To many, the title, A Transdiagnostic Approach to CBT Using a Method of Levels Approach, may seem incongruous with a podcast channel called New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. However, listeners familiar with my previous interview with Richard S. Markin about his co-authored book, Controlling People, The Paradoxical Nature of Being Human, will be aware of contemporary developments of William T. Powers' essentially cybernetic perceptual control theory, or PCT, and the method of levels, MOL, approach to cognitive behavioral therapy that emerged from Powers' revolutionary vision. Markin's co-author, Timothy A. Carey, has been the driving force behind the evolution of MOL and is also the co-author, along with Warren Mansell and Sarah Tai of the University of Manchester, of this episode's featured book. Lead author Mansell and his colleagues have deftly crafted a clear and concise introduction to the underlying principles and practical procedures of this therapeutic approach that is as digestible and useful for students of cybernetics in general as it is for practicing psychotherapeutic clinicians. In our conversation, Mansell crisply outlines the growing transdiagnostic conception of mental distress, the hypothesized system of hierarchically nested control systems undergirding human behavior, and the stunningly simple yet powerful therapeutic approach that is grounded in this cybernetic hypothesis and that is gaining ever more robust empirical support with each passing year. This is important work for researchers in all disciplines committed to exploring a cybernetic conception of adaptive or maladaptive human behavior. So without any further ado, let's turn to my interview with Warren Mansell. Warren Mansell, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to join us. No problem. Uh, and I'm happy to report that this is our first in-person interview. I'm actually sitting here in uh, Manchester in the United Kingdom uh, for the first face-to-face uh, interview in the, in the channel's history. Um, so can you uh, begin, as we usually begin on this channel and all the channels on the network, by telling us a little bit about um, your academic background, your intellectual trajectory to an engagement with uh, perceptual control theory, uh, particularly, obviously, in the field of psychology and how it shows up in uh, method of levels? Yep. Um, so um, my background at university was a natural sciences degree because I was always interested in biology. But I specialised in psychology in my third year um, because I was fascinated by all the unanswered questions about the brain and the mind and mental health, etc. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a PhD um, in an area of cognitive behaviour therapy at the time it was on social phobia, um, which is a diagnostic category. Uh, people are anxious about being rejected and ridiculed by others. Um, comes across in all kinds of social situations. Did my PhD on that. And while I was doing that PhD, that gave me opportunity to read around. And I saw 
all the other models and ideas and studies about all these other different anxiety disorders, depression, psychoses, personality, et cetera, et cetera, this vast array of different disorders. And that, the more I looked at it, the more I saw the same thing rather than anything different. Um, I was also aware that <clears throat> I was studying this area of cognitive behavior therapy and I didn't really see anywhere any clear theoretical way that the cognitive side, beliefs and ideas and thoughts, link to the behavioral side in terms of actions in the world. And I knew there must be something that forged a bridge between those two. And I was on a, on a hunt for that thing. And if I didn't find the theory, I probably would have tried to come up with something. But I stumbled upon... A book, it's actually Gary Zico's book called Without Miracles in about, I think, 1998, and there's a chapter in there on PCT, on perceptual control theory, and there was a diagram of the hierarchy, and that, I looked at the hierarchy, I thought, well, that could show some kind of seamless gradient between the lower level aspects of our psychology and the higher level. Um, because I was always suspicious that there was the idea that there was just just this disjunct. Um, and so I got Bill Power's book from the library and read it. And probably at that time, probably only appreciated about 20% of what I appreciate now, but it was enough to know that this was the right theory mm. that was going to bring these fields together. And I wrote a paper that attempted to explain and integrate a whole ra range of research on mental health problems, including attachment theory and some psychoanalytical ideas. Um, and I finished that in 2000 and it eventually got published in 2005. Mm. And very soon after it got published, I got contacted by Tim Carey, who told me that he was practicing a therapy derived directly from this theory and from that point onwards the rate at which I was using PCT and disseminating it and doing it in my research just increased rapidly mm -hmm. um, and I've been doing mainly PCT research for the last 10 11 12 years right and teaching it at University of Manchester as well yeah along with your your colleague uh, Sarah J Ty another yeah. co-author on the book along with of course Timothy A Carey Tim Carey yeah um so um, this may be an obvious question, or the answer may be obvious, uh, given what you just described about the state of the field when you came upon this, but why this particular book now? What, uh, what led the three of you to uh, decide this, this was a book that was necessary and take it to Rutledge to get it included in the CBT Distinctive Features yeah. series? Back in 2004, um, I'd written another book with three other colleagues, all CBT researchers, um, which made what we thought then and still think now is a very strong empirical case for why the psychological processes, the things that people do or think that keep them distressed and need to be worked upon in a therapy, um, are the same processes, whatever the disorder a person's got. So examples include worry, suppressing emotions, avoidance, for example. Um, 
And at that time, that book was explicitly a theoretical, really. We didn't put our own theory onto that. But it was always left in the air, really, of, well, what is the theory that's going to um, transform this into a therapy? Um, and Tim had already written two manuals on method of levels, but they were, so they were standalone manuals about method of levels. The aim of this book was to draw that bridge between that evidence for the transdiagnostic approach, mm. the cognitive therapy, and then because of that evidence, drawing out the logic of why the therapy that we would need to use would be method of levels. And from that point in the book, just explaining method of levels alongside a few developments that myself and Sarah and Tim had had about, for example, supervision mm. um, and applying it in different contexts. Right. Great. Um, so you've said a little bit, obviously in the title is the word transdiagnostic, and you've already said a little bit about that idea. Is there anything else you want to add about the notion of a transdiagnostic approach? I'm imagining that's still, I don't know if radical is the word, but uh, mm -hmm. it's still new and challenging. Mm -hmm. um, so do you want to say a little bit more about a transdiagnostic view on yeah. mental disorders? Yeah. When, when we used the term in 2004, it only ever been used before to um, bridge together different eating disorders. Mm. We were the first people, as far as we we're aware, to use it across all mental health problems. Mm. Um, but now it is used very often to apply it across all mental health problems. Um, and we did recently plot the, site, the, the use of the term in, in published papers, and it has increased a lot, but really only in the last... Uh, five years or so has it the, the, the transdiagnostic approach been researched mm. um, considerably and it's not just in psychology it's in neuroscience in genetics in social factors so it is reaching that threshold of um, recognition mm. now in the mental health sphere and do you think this is a move, a necessary move for us to move beyond even the standard kind of diagnostic categories? Or are they still useful for us? Or <laughs> Well, my take on this, and I've got a paper and a YouTube video on it, is that you can espouse and use a transdiagnostic approach without having to dismantle the, the diagnostic system. Um, but at the same time, you don't need it either. Mm. So we don't get into too many tangles about it because we just say that is what it is. Mm. Um, but we are interested in the underlying process of change, mm -hmm. which explains how these categories develop, change, right. overlap, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. um, I take the analogy of Charles Darwin, who developed the theory of natural selection, which is a theory of all life, um, he actually used the classification system to support his argument because he was showing the continuity and the, and the similarities between different species. Um, so to me, to, to come up with some unified approach of understanding change and how to facilitate change can be a completely orthogonal, really, to this mm. system. Right. Um, so, yeah. And neither do you uh, claim that uh, method of levels is the only method that 
does people good. It's because it's obvious that many methods do, but it seems mm -hmm. to me that what you do, what you and your co-authors are suggesting is that the ones that do work, they work because they're addressing the things that are covered by this theory. Yeah. That, that, that yeah. We MOLs, don't subscribe yeah. to the idea that you need a different theory for every single therapy no. out there, that they yeah. work in these totally distinct ways. Right. In fact, the opposite. Yeah. And we think that the distinctive features of most therapies are the less important parts. It's what processes they are mm. um, working upon that is the active ingredient. And so therefore, Method Levels is a therapy to try to, try to most efficiently work on that process. Right. Um, great. So let's talk about some of those mechanisms. So uh, the phenomenon <coughs> of control, which you uh, break down into, and this will be familiar to our cybernetic uh, listeners, uh, perception, comparison, and action. Mm -hmm. So can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it, that's just a way to simplify um, Bill Powers' um, control unit. Um, I think it, it helps just to make people aware that for everything that you perceive, every input, you're, you've always got some kind of standard or comparison point, which is your goal for that. And the only reason that that input makes any sense to you or is is kind of you, you would direct attention to it is because you have those goals and then you act in the world to change that perception. Mm. Um, so when we explain it, we always talk about it as this closed loop and it's really clear that this isn't a, a kind of highly segmented set of processes, but it's a kind of a fluid thing. Obviously as conscious beings, we can look at those steps um, if we wish to, but according to powers, there are these systems that are perceiving and comparing and tweaking and changing our actions moment by moment in parallel to all kinds of things mm -hmm. um, at a very automatic level. And that's how we speak and listen and kind of communicate non-verbally, etc. whilst we're also having thoughts going on in our heads. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, much of that is happening below the level of conscious exactly. awareness. Yeah. Um, this would be a good time to remind folks to, if to cross reference them to an earlier episode we did with Rick Markin on his uh, book, also co-written with Tim Carey, uh, controlling people, uh, for more of a, a, a grounding in the perceptual control theory, which we're going to keep talking about, obviously, because it is the, the grounding of MOL, but we're going to get into MOL mm -hmm. specifically as a, as a practice, um, as we move move along, so I think we should probably revisit the the maxim of uh, perceptual control theory that uh, behavior is the control of perception, mm -hmm. and what we're doing is controlling perception or inputs rather than behavior or outputs. Is there mm -hmm. anything you want to mm -hmm. add about that? Well, that it's a whole lot more than just those words. It's a way of seeing and perceiving living things that eventually you get. And I think you get it by thinking a lot about it, by looking at demonstrations, by sometimes learning this therapy. Um, it's It only really clicks when you kind of have, have read enough and talked through it enough and seen enough examples. Mm. Um, because the implications of, of 
seeing behavior that way or understanding behavior that way are mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. are radically different from a behavioristic model that yeah. is still underlying a lot of a lot yeah. of according to PCT essentially behavior isn't learnt mm -hmm. the the systems the control systems that use behavior to control their inputs the parameters of those are learnt mm -hmm. but when you see a behavior that could quite easily be a behavior that's um, dynamically changing on the fly mm. to keep somebody in the zone they want to keep mm -hmm. in and doesn't need to be kind mm -hmm. of historically reinforced. Mm -hmm. uh, just off the top of your head, can you give our just our listeners an example of some kind of mm -hmm. behavior that might mm -hmm. morph that mm -hmm. way? But it's yeah, they're all different routines yeah. to either get a variable somewhere where you want it or maintain it where you want it to mm -hmm. be. Uh, maybe I'll give one trivial example and one clinical example. So the trivial example that's quite kind of um, colourful is imagine that you're on a on a ferry on a cruise and you're it gets a bit rocky it's a bit of a storm and you've just bought a pint of beer mm. and you need to get it from the bar back to you know where you're sitting um, we have an, an amazing ability to keep things stable including beer and other fluids um, and we're barely aware of the fact that we're doing this, but the ability that somebody has to keep something stable in a, a kind of um, horizontal plane whilst their own body's moving, the ship's moving, there's wind, etc., etc. It's never perfect, but there's all kind of dynamic changes that mm. happen to their muscles at that mm. point to do mm. it. And the PCT view is those muscle actions um, do not need to be pre-planned Mm -hmm. um, either historically through learning or even planned by the brain as they are being sent out, mm -hmm. what's being, what they're doing is constantly adjusting dynamically to the reference points that are being specified by the brain, which mm -hmm. will include certain kind of muscle, like tensions in terms of grip, in terms of the stability of the, of the liquid, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, take a clinical example. Um, I think a really important example is um, traumatic memories. So many people who have mental health difficulties have had trauma. And when we've researched or looked at literature across this, nearly every single mental health problem, people can recall a time in their life that was aversive, challenging, traumatic, and they can still get intrusive memories of those experiences. Now, there's a whole detailed way that PCT might explain the memory side, which we could come into. But very often, people who struggle with this have a, a goal for that memory, which is essentially to wipe the plate clean. And the, there was the, the film, the, is it the eternal sunshine of the smartest yes. mind? Yeah. It's that kind of idea that you can erase a bad memory, mm. put it to the back and pretend it never happened or try and tell yourself you never did. Um, and so the perceptual goal is to have zero of that memory mm. in your awareness, mm. okay? That is that is the goal, and that is the simplicity, essentially, of what that person is suffering from. Um, but the way that they go about trying to achieve that could be extremely varied, both moment to moment, situation to situation, and throughout their lifetime. Mm. Sometimes they will be, as I say, pushing the thoughts to the back of their mind, 
um, trying to kind of push away certain emotions. They might choose certain situations as certain people that do or don't remind them of, of this past experience. They might make job choices, depending on it. They might <coughs> change the subject in a conversation because of it. They might control their social distance, whether they drink or not to cope with it, um, whether they dissociate or not to go mm-hmm. with it. So the, the many ways that you could use to try and essentially follow the same goal. Mm. And method of levels is all about trying to get to the nub of the goal mm. and not getting so lost in all the means to achieve the goal, often some of which actually appear as a certain diagnosis. Mm-hmm. But to just, as soon as the person's ready, to get to the, the heart of it and get them working on that. Right. Because we feel like the rest of it can be something of a distraction from what's at the root of, of the difficulty. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, what are some of the things, well, you mentioned trauma, but is there anything else you want to mention in terms of what leads to a loss of control? What are the things that drives right. this sense okay. of loss of control? Yeah. Well, so PCT has always stated right back to the first papers in 1960, that the most pernicious and difficult to address cause of loss of control is conflict. Now, there are other causes of loss of control, natural disasters, for example, or not having a goal, not having a reference point for something, Mm. not knowing what you want. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But not arguably, the PCT states that the the most um, chronic and challenging thing that undermines control is conflict. And if you think about it, the human being has got so many aspects of their life and their biology that they need to control you know in terms of food drink sex in terms of self-esteem in terms of kind of current things in terms of kind of how you're getting across to other people your work life priorities etc etc what you're going to do that day somehow all those things that you're trying to control and be just right for yourself need to be balanced and they need to be organized and any conflicts they have with each other clearly need to be resolved. So, for example, going back to the trauma example, if if you can effectively keep pushing that memory to the back of your mind and mm. it's working and there's no particular reason why you need the stuff in that memory, then maybe you can carry along like that for a while. But maybe suddenly there's the opportunity where you go into a new town and you see the person that perpetrated the attack against you and suddenly this potential to bring them to justice or to wreak vengeance or to just hide suddenly come to you and now you're in conflict Mm. before this wasn't you know it was less maybe the person managed it to be less of Mm. an issue Mm. but there are certain situations certain contexts and certain roles where suddenly um our strategies and our ways of coping are conflictual Mm. um and this can maybe account for when people have episodes or real serious indecision or they feel like they reach desperation or need help mm. because these two sides are at loggerheads. But as I say, I'm, I've probably overcharacterized it in terms of the trauma. Think of another example, someone who's always thought of themselves as a, um, always prided themselves in being a perfectionist and in doing the absolute best at everything. Um, but the problem is the way they go about being perfect 
actually ends up frustrating other people because they're always checking and criticizing and kind of doing that to themselves. But there's another goal they have to just to be normal, to be like everyone mm. else. Mm. But how can they be at one, like everyone else when they need to be so perfect at the same time? Mm. You know, mm. so and the classic cognitive approach to this is the perfectionism is the problem and it's and it's dysfunctional when it's distressing when it interferes with your life and that's kind of how it's left mm. but still kind of left as the perfectionism is the problem whereas for a pct approach perfectionism is one side of you pulling and the other side is to live a normal life mm. And it's the fact that you're at loggerheads between the two that's the mm. that's the challenge and the issue. Because if you didn't have an, a simultaneous desire to live a normal life, that wouldn't be causing you distress no, no, on its exactly. own. And if it was more important to you to achieve those perfect, perfect ends than the kinds of things that your mm. attempts to do it were, how they were affecting yeah. other people. You could be losing friends on. all over the place yeah. and, and not yeah. be bothered. Yeah. 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 I'm just going to adjust this mic um great um so we're going to get to the therapy very soon but um can you talk a little bit about the idea of going up and down levels as a way that mm -hmm. one is is hopefully going to uh address these yeah. issues and then we'll yeah. talk about mol and how it how it how yeah. it gets people moving that direction yeah i mean i might blend the two um sure. so i guess there's there's an assumption that when someone first asks you to talk about a problem, you talk about it at more of a lower level. It's making me stressed, you know, it's making me tense. Um, I feel so bad, you know, I'm getting into arguments, whatever, that we, we describe things fairly concretely normally um, as they're affecting us, and that's probably as it should be. Um, but that's not where the problem is, that's the the suggestion because we are we organize our lives at, at multiple levels and so we need to know so answer the why question what is it about what i'm doing and how i'm approaching it that gives me that problem and method of levels is a way of asking curious questions that help someone to see those deeper levels and doing it in a way that is as naturalistic and brief and undisturbing to the client as the therapist can manage. And so the client then starts talking about, well, you know, I'm feeling stressed because I'm working so hard. I'm pushing myself. Um, so that's kind of gone to one depth. And, and then with time, the person might be answering a question as to why they're working so hard and pushing themselves. And it might be because they have a particular goal to get, you know, promotion and then they might eventually be talking about well why was that important to them because um, they want to prove themselves to other people um, so you're going up to a level getting a broader goal that's more around often self-identity and one's values and principles than it is the everyday mm. or the kind of the kind of medium-term goal that mm. we often talk about when mm. we're just having chats with people right um, but method levels is a way of doing that in a very, in a, a way that is conversational and varied and 
dynamic rather than just asking why all the time. <laughs> and because we're always interested in, so, well, what's the problem about this? Mm. We find, and the theory would expect us to find, always this other side. Well, it's because, actually, I want to relax, and I like relaxing, and, you know, I like reading books, and I haven't read one for three years, or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're then going up, but we're going up in, like, these kind of two goals that are going deeper and deeper, and then we're looking to see where it is that these Mm. are emanating from. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that once you get to that that level and seeing these two um, quite pervasive and important and often self-definitional goals that are in conflict, then suddenly it's very clear why you're so distressed because you're kind of pulling your whole self and your whole life into two opposite directions. Mm. Um, and some clients, in my experience, just see just that understanding makes the difference. Mm. Um, others, you need to then still keep on unpacking all the material that comes into those. Because it's what we're not trying to do is, is kind of push people up to that point mm-hmm. and make it look like, we're some you know, clever psychologist who can use a technique to suddenly get them to their nirvana or to their mm. insights. We're not doing hypnosis. We're not doing some kind of, um, with the therapist doesn't create any of their own metaphors, for example. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is being a, a guide, tracking them and re- recording, reflecting that back to them so that the client themselves is the navigator. Mm-hmm. And so they can find their way up and they can find their way back down by themselves mm. rather than us trying to magic the way out there and, and give that a label and say, yes, that's why you need me or that's mm. why you need this therapy. Mm. Um, but actually just get their brain trained up to doing what probably comes naturally to them about other things, mm. but probably not about the problem that they've not yet resolved. Mm. And it's probably a good time to mention too that even the terms and conditions of therapy in MOL reflect this mm-hmm. idea of the control being in the hands of the of the client patient. Yeah. yeah. Uh, even in terms of how often they come, when do they stop? Yeah, yeah. How long is a session? Yeah. And I I think that would never have happened without Tim Carey mm. kind of having that insight mm. because there are nearly every other therapy out there doesn't have that insight Mm. that you need to be informed by your theory right from the, from the first referral, Mm. you know, the first principles ground, even how you're going to structure the theory. Yeah. Making appointments. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and I also think that you could take PCT and just think, and just be thinking, Oh yeah, this is about how I talk to the person now and forget. Mm. the whole systems around it Mm. and I guess that you know that's the system's thinking and the fact is yeah it's it's like a fractal approach at every level you need to be thinking how is the client going to um, get some control back here and start to exercise their control Mm. Um, now there's obviously a difference between exerting control in a way that's that's not fully informed in a way it is fully informed. Mm. But we would still say that you've got to give that client a chance. For all you know, they may be, you know, before you've met them, they may be making exactly the kind of choice that they want to. And if they want more information, then you can give it to them or you can use 
look at this kind of questioning to help them mm-hmm. go up to level and say, well, actually, yeah, I, don't, I don't need to come to this therapy yet. I'll come, you know, when I'm ready. Or mm. they might say, I need, I need some intensive mm. work for mm. a few days. I think I'm ready now or whatever. And, and just take that as they must know that they're the people that whose lives it is. And mm. yes, I could try and understand this for myself, but it would take ages for me to try and kind mm. of get systems that they've learnt and grown up in. So let's mm-hmm. just take that. So it's really grounded in this belief that uh, the client does have the tools to make themselves better. Yeah. And it's really just about, uh, like you say, tracking rather than advising with your own theories and your own metaphors, as you mentioned. And it's about yeah. uh, helping them find using their own natural um yeah, and that's probably a good point to talk about reorganization. Yeah. <clears throat> because um, the problem with conflict is that there's no right or wrong. There's no, it's not right to be, to, to seek perfection in things, and it's not wrong to seek perfection in things. It's not right to be, try and be normal. It's not wrong to try and be normal. Um, it's not right or wrong to try and forget a traumatic memory. It's not right or wrong to try and remember it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not something that can be easily rationalized using our, um, our logical methods. Um, and so one would expect there'd be a way of resolving conflict that doesn't require some logical solution. And Bill Powers actually drawing on some earlier cybernetics that he's credited, such as Ross Ashby, put forward the mechanism of reorganization as what resolves these unresolvable conflicts and also what is actually the learning mechanism for anything that's kind of being developed. Um, so during infancy, for example. Um, and so the idea is that our brain is in- intrinsically driven to um, re- reduce error, reduce to, to achieve our goals, to regain control, and that if our current organization, our current thinking isn't working, it will tweak and change these ways of perceiving the world, the ways of um, adjusting and balancing and, and reprioritizing our, our control systems, our mm. goals. And it will do that. And, and, and there's a fairly consistent suggestion that the more difficulties you've got, the more you're going to reorganize. So you're going to introduce more variation and more randomness. Um, and that that is actually something that the brain's doing to try and help itself, mm. to try and end up, nudge itself into another solution space that is going to make a difference. Mm. And, you know, anyone listening to this from kind of dynamic systems, maths point of view, will know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. local minima and that kind of business. Right. Um, so it's, it's that kind of algorithm um and we i guess in a way that mol therapist has a faith that that's going to be happening mm-hmm. it just needs to be happening in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. for long enough mm-hmm. um and we think that's why processes like exposure work because it's a way of keeping someone in the zone mm-hmm. of this difficulty mm-hmm. for long enough and they're choosing to do that mm-hmm. um to make a change that actually benefits them. Mm. Sometimes things get worse before they get better, but essentially it's a trial and error process. Because the spotlight of consciousness has to remain somewhere where 
some reorganization can be done, right? It has to stay there long enough. Yeah, there has to be some part of the brain that means that we're not constantly changing orbits. Because right. we, you know, we'd never be able to rely on anything. Right. So we have to have a way of um, localizing that change. Yeah. And evaluating, oh, has that made a difference or not? Mm. And that, and the argument is that our awareness is indicates where that's most likely to happen or maybe mm. happen in a, a greatest rate. For mm. example. And then we'll start shining the flashlight up a level and up a level. And I guess yeah. it, I guess it's important to remind um, listeners um, of the notion that um, conflicts are occurring due to conflicting um, uh, values set always at least a level above. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to solve the conflict on the level control level at which it's showing up. Yeah. You're going to have to go up Yeah, to find out the reference values are being set by the, the levels above. Yeah. 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 It's a key, key feature of the theory and, uh, and then the practice. So we're getting into you to keep on going up and keep on in that reflective mode yeah. rather than just going for one side of it. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay, so we're into the practice. Um, we talked about setting the conditions for therapy. So can you tell us a little bit about how it unfolds and how this is anchored in the two main tasks of the, uh, of the therapist, as I, as I understand them, in terms of keeping the person focused on the issue mm-hmm. and then looking for background thoughts that show up as, as what you term disruptions mm-hmm. in, the, in this theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because sometimes when I do training on this and I explain the theory, well, nearly always people expect therapy to be terribly complicated. Yeah, right. Because the theory has so many components to it. But it's exactly the opposite. It's at least as far as the uh, therapist's goals are concerned. Um, Yeah, they just want to help the person keep on talking about what they want to talk about. And they're noticing disruptions, which are surface indicators of yeah, some a background thought or something fleeting in the person's awareness that they haven't yet and might not put into words and, and, and build as part of their description of the problem. And the idea is that you're on the lookout for those because they may take you to a higher level in terms of goals or values or conflicts that will help color and uh, explore and expand this picture Mm. such that it gives longer for reorganization to make a difference Mm. for that person to get an insight or get a a kind of a consideration of a problem that they haven't made before. Mm. Um, And when you watch a methylose therapist, you'll see them listening intently, probably sitting in in the front of the person, just kind of watching and looking and asking questions fairly regularly that depends on the person but more regularly than most therapies but the therapist rarely talks for too long before it's back to the client again and you know you keep this process going Mm -hmm. so you're just trying to focus all of your efforts on scaffolding and tracking what the client's doing what's in their conscious awareness Mm. and helping them bring enough into that or more more and more into that that's going to broaden their understanding and keep their often their emotional engagement with it sufficient mm. enough to, to make a difference 
And can you describe <clears throat> what some of the some of the disruptions look like? Because there's very yeah, key yeah. sort of clues and cues that you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, more and more we do method levels, and more and more we don't want to try and preempt mm. questions you're going to ask, disruptions you're going to notice. Mm-hmm. But the idea is, it's anything that's not the content of what the person's saying mm. that kind of happens intermittently mm. so we're not looking for kind of um habits mm. or sort of non-verbal styles mm. we're looking for stuff that kind of is is there mm. that is not spoken about but kind of shows that there's something else mm. maybe at the back of the person's mind mm. that not putting there. so so, yeah. so the things that mm-hmm. can include are Subtle changes in in emotion mm-hmm. and smiles and kind of grimaces and mm. surprise looks, mm. um, shifts in eye contact, pauses, emphasizing certain words and to some degree gestures. Mm. Um, and I guess yeah, we're we're in the business of not trying to to read those, um, but to to use them as a way of helping the person not just tell the same old story mm. that they've told themselves before, but mm-hmm. to go somewhere different mm-hmm. that they wouldn't have gone to if mm. they'd been talking to a friend mm. or, or having a different kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. So to, to read them in order to ask about them rather than to interpret them. Yeah. So someone totally. suddenly sits way back in the <laughs> chair and, He's yeah. a deep what, sigh. What you just then, yeah, as opposed to yeah, kind of it thing. seems you're feeling this way right now. Yeah. Right. It's the question, what just happened? You just yeah. your whole tone changed or your posture changed or Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, those two fundamental principles are really the main job of the therapist, right? Yeah, the, the only person, two goals of the therapist. And the person is in charge of and the therapist does ask once in a while though if it's okay to keep going, yeah, because in a sense, reminding the client that they're in charge of even when yeah, it stops. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we ask fairly often about, um, you know, how is this going? Mm. You know, is this working right for you? Mm. Or is it not? Mm. Um, and I guess in a way, partly that's in the territory of the first goal in terms of helping them talk about a problem as they want to talk about it. And we often ask, are we talking about what you want to talk about right mm, now? Mm. Is this, is this the problem you want to talk about? Mm. You know, so, mm. so kind of reminding them that it's, that mm. it's, it's down to them and, and that they can adjust this process if they want to. Mm-hmm. So you've been training people that are go on into life as clinicians and you don't do clinical work yourself and mm-hmm. your colleagues who also uh, the ones on this book and also others, uh, in the in the community of folks involved in PCT and MOL, um, so what kinds of impacts are you seeing the work have, uh, and what areas have you seen successes? And yeah, yeah. So well, we've got this now. We've been doing this for many years. We've got a very diverse way that it's that it's been used. Um, we've you know, there's papers published that Tim has published in. Mostly in primary care settings and mixed groups mm. again, and a secondary care setting um, that show changes in in symptoms that are healthy, large large effect sizes, if you like, um, but kind of appreciable and similar to um, at least as as good as other benchmark studies. So I guess the, the sort of simple answer to that is that we see the kind of benefits that you see in, in other therapies. Mm. Um, 
what Tim's recognizing is that he seems to get those changes with less therapy sessions mm. than some of these other comparison uh, groups or all of the ones that he published in one of his uh, papers in 2013. Um, and again, that, that's as it should be. That's what we're looking for. We're not mm. looking to um, kind of suddenly have come step change in effect size. We are basically trying to give people, as many people as we can, as efficiently as can, mm. a, a therapy that works mm. for them mm. and to not take them down blind alleys or to get them signed up to long courses of therapy that they might not need. Mm. But on the, same, on the same vein, to give people longer if they need it. Mm. So to give that, embrace that individuality in, in how much therapy somebody needs. So that's one thing we see. And we see that people, on average, most people have about three or four sessions so they end up choosing quite a few numbers. Um, but then you get this tail end of some people that, mm. that have a lot more than, than, than that and a lot more than other therapies. Um, so it's, you can see that efficiency creeping in because most people are having a, a shorter number mm. and making that choice. And we've done that very recently in, um, in Manchester um, in first episode psychosis where people are using this service very efficiently. Mm. And um, we've interviewed those people about what their experience of the mm-hmm. therapy. And people seem to value the same things that we've designed it for in terms of their choice. They can come when they want to. They can talk about what they want when they want to. The therapist isn't coming in with their own agenda. And that's something that they, they tell us they, they value. And haven't necessarily experienced before. Many of them have been in the mental health yeah. system for a long time. Is, I said, I've yeah. been from one to another who keeps telling me a lot of stuff. Yeah, and often you can find that people's different training colors the angle that the clinician comes in and tries to describe what the cause of their difficulties is. And that can be quite a confusing picture. And we're not interested in telling people what causes mm. the problem. Mm. We're just interested in helping them get out of it in mm-hmm. a sense. Um, so I think that's that's another aspect. The other thing we found is that it's been particularly useful for contexts where um, the structure makes it very hard to deliver a course of therapy that would rely upon the therapist having some kind of formulation or some disorder model and they want to see it through for like 10, 15, 20 sessions, whatever. So... Um, Sarah's you and some other colleagues with Huddy used it in um, inpatient settings and psychiatric wards where people can just drop in mm. when they want it. Mm. Uh, they've used it in prisons. Um, Susan McCormack used it on death row in Texas with people. Um, we've used it in schools where obviously the curriculum is pretty tight um, in terms of finding time to see um, a therapist. Um, so, and as I say, in terms of outpatient psychosis as well. Um, so we've used it in some contexts that are challenged by other approaches. Mm. Um, and again, we see that as a a nice niche for it, you know, because there's not much else out there that mm. can be theory-driven and available at such a kind of a, a client-driven and flexible way. Mm. And also, uh, you've been able to train and spread these methods to people who are not full-time practicing clinicians, school mm-hmm. teachers, 
mm-hmm. guidance counselors, mm-hmm. etc. It's a kind of a method that um, can can be used responsibly by people yeah. who are not full time clinicians or, or full time yeah. psychologists. Um, uh, there's obviously certain areas that they're not qualified mm-hmm. to go into, but the basic method of just helping mm-hmm. someone sort mm-hmm. through their thoughts mm-hmm. through these two fundamental operations of keeping them in focused on this, on the problem space, as long as they want to be focused, as long as they're comfortable mm-hmm. and looking for those disruptions and background thoughts. It's, it's, yeah. it's been able yeah. to be used by people yeah. across yeah. domains. And, yeah. And that two aspects of that one is Bill Powers actually, you know, he came up with the, the whole idea mm-hmm. and, the, and the method that was then made into an intervention in it, when Tim was developing it and, and working closely with Bill on that. So it, it's, it's has its origins not in a clinical mm-hmm. sphere. Um, Bill actually used it to inform the theory as well. So it was a bit of a kind of a two-way connection. Um, but uh, also in, in the States, because there's been people in education interested in PCT, um, yeah, they have uh, taught teachers in, in method levels and they've used it with one another, mm. for example, to help deal with you know, difficulties that come up. Um, and we've got uh, drop-in sessions um, for teachers um, that we use method levels, but we've also training up um, teaching and pastoral care workers in schools. To, mm. to deliver it. Terrific. Uh, is there anything else about MOL that you we haven't covered that you want to make sure that our our listeners hear or get some understanding of? I guess um, it's. I think you need to watch it or, or listen to it. Mm. So Tim Carey's got a website, um, methodoflevels.com.au, mm-hmm. um, where you can see videos. There are also some of those are on YouTube and some some of mine on YouTube mm-hmm. as well. Um, so I think that's important to mm-hmm. see it. But at the same time, it's quite powerful to experience it as well as a client because when you're experiencing it or when we talk to people, we always get feedback from people, especially when we're doing demonstrations. Um, often you can't remember what you've been asked or you've got a sense of is that you've been able to talk for far longer about something that anyone else will give you time <laughs> for. Mm. And that is really valued. Mm. Whereas sometimes when you look at that on the outside, it's like, why does this person keep on asking questions? You know, cause it's not socially kind of acceptable mm. really mm. to have such a one-sided kind of interaction Mm. and that's because it's not a normal social interaction Mm. it's a very precise form of interaction Mm -hmm. um and so i think when you so part of it is the theory and trying to to kind of wrestle with the fact that these kind of principles could indeed be the basic principles of 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 how we function and well-being Mm. get your head around that then it's watching it get your head around the fact that you know this is all the therapy might be. Um, but then really kind of listening to how people talk about the experience of it. And actually there's an interview again on Tim's website of someone and they've just had the session and talking all about what the experience was like. Mm, mm. Um, and so it, it takes quite a bit of time to kind of get that fully rounded understanding of what this right. is. And you've got some videos linked to your site at the University of Manchester. Is, is that right? Or your personal site? Yeah, I've got, well, I've got a YouTube yeah. channel. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've also got a Twitter feed, which is right. at Warren Mansell. Yeah. 
Um, and on that Twitter feed, I've linked into some interviews that other people like yourself have done with me and mm. uh, a meta level session I did with uh, Danny Whitaker, mm-hmm. who's um, a podcaster, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they're all. Uh, Which is well worth watching. I've it's... watched this session and it really is remarkable. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll end with our traditional last question on the New Books Network, which is what are you working on now besides continuing to, to train the next generation of uh, MOL clinicians and to continue to carry the flag for MOL along with your colleagues? What other sort of writing projects have you done on the go and research? Writing and research. Well, whatever you want to tell us. <laughs> um, probably far too many. Yeah. Um, but in terms of kind of giving you a picture of the, the diversity of it. Um, I mean, I'm working quite a lot on testing the theory in basic science, mm. experimental psychology, um, and in, in robotics as well, um, and working with colleagues on that. Um, and I'm also spending a lot of time, as I talked about, expanding the um, breadth of use of method levels, schools, um, first episode psychosis with, uh, Rob Griffiths. Um, and, uh, most recently looking at possible counter radicalization as well. So mm-hmm. ways that communities can use it as a way of listening to people, um, that in a very natural way helps them to let's say, regulate their lives and get their values in order before they resort to more extreme means to, mm. to go through that. And that's obviously very very much work in progress, but mm. our pre- preliminary work is promising. Excellent. Well, thank you once again so much for uh, taking the time. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Warren Mansell, co-author with Timothy A. Carey and Sarah J. Ty of A Transdiagnostic Approach to CBT Using Method of Levels Therapy. Thanks for joining us on New Books and Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. And we'll be back again soon with another episode.